is. Well, we are in chapter 6 of the book of Galatians. That's the last chapter. I don't know what the experience has been like for you guys uh, with Pastor Cord and myself kind of uh, splitting the duties up and going through this book. But it's been a great opportunity for us to get to know each other better and to kind of find a way to weave a common thread through all six of these chapters. Uh, Pastor Cord described the Apostle Paul several weeks ago as being angry. And you know, as you read the book of Galatians, you get that sense. The Apostle Paul is angry. And it's kind of a righteous indignation. It's a righteousness that comes from God, but it makes him angry because of what took place in the churches of Galatia. You know, it wasn't just a town, it was an entire region, kind of like Volusia County, only bigger, with all these little communities, cities, churches that he planted, that he invested blood, sweat, and tears into. And he taught the gospel to them, and he, he led them to Jesus Christ. Do you remember the person who led you to Jesus Christ? Do you remember the affection that you probably still have for that person? I remember as a little child in Sunday school, watching as my Sunday school teachers came to my home to talk with my mother. And I was always afraid I was going to be in trouble because of my behavior in Sunday school. But that wasn't why they were there, really. They were there to talk about spiritual growth and how they could assist in my entire family's spiritual growth. I remember those people who, live, uh, who left such a great impact on my life. So the Apostle Paul is kind of in that role. He really believes that he's led these folks to Christ. He's given them the full gospel. And somebody else, after the apostle's gone, has come in and said, you know what? It's kind of right, but it's not all right. There's a whole lot more to this gospel than that. And we think you ought to be backing up a little bit and going down a different path and listening to somebody else's teaching and following somebody else's direction. Paul's been gone for about 18 months. And when this word comes to him, he gets angry. And he picks up the apostolic pen and he begins to write these words in the book of Galatians. And so that's where we begin in chapter 1. Now as we get to chapter 6, you might think there's going to be kind of a cool down period. And I think there is. You can tell by the way he starts this sixth chapter. He starts with the words brothers and sisters. He's now calling them. He's reminding them that we are bound by far more than just having lived with each other for a period of time and known each other. We're bound as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a great message for the church today. Uh, churches make some really stupid decisions. They just do. And probably part of that is because of the people who are in those churches or in positions of leadership. And Paul reminds all of us our relationship is to be that of a brother and sister in Christ. I'm sure when you grew up with your siblings... The relationship was always perfect, spotless, happy, joyful, right? You never pulled your sister's hair. You never blackened your brother's eye. Uh, we had entire WWE wrestling matches at my house when we grew up, and it didn't always work out well. But he begins this chapter uh, by calling them brothers and sisters. He says, if someone is caught in sin, uh, I, I don't, don't know if we have that verse on the screen or not, but that word caught... The first thing it reminded me of was the woman who was caught in adultery. That's an example of something that was set up. That didn't just happen. There were a group of people who really wanted to make an example out of her. You never hear about the man who was caught in adultery. There was a man right there. But it was the woman who was 
caught in adultery. She was trapped. That's not actually the word that is being used here. Um, that is a staged setup. Aha, I caught you. It's like you know something about somebody. You know the sin that they committed and that they did. And so you feel as the older brother in Christ that it's your job just to point it out to him and say, look, I know what you've done. No. This word has the connotation of it's not something that they intended to do. But nevertheless, it is something that has befallen them. You never try to take that first step toward disaster, do you? If you knew that it was going to be a disaster, you wouldn't take that step. But nevertheless, we take the step from time to time because we are fallen people and we literally get caught in situations that we never thought we would be in. I know in your entire spiritual life, in your relationship with God, your love for him and your desire to serve him in other ways and to impact the world for Christ and to lead other people to Jesus, you never had the first thought of how terrible a thing you could do or how difficult a situation you could create or how fallen you could become or how many others you could take with you because they become familiar with your circumstance or even involved in it. He says, brothers and sisters, if you become aware of someone who is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, key words, circle it, underline it in red. That's one of the things about the transformed life that we see in the book of Galatians. Your life is not going to be transformed unless it is Spirit-filled. Spirit-led. Remember we talked about people, crazy people, how difficult it is to live in the world with people. But you know what? That's all God has given us, our people. To walk with us down our path, to walk along the way, wherever we're going. It's people, it's God's power, and then it's God's purpose. So the thing that moves us in that progression from just being ham and eggers, empty-headed sinners, walking down a disastrous pathway, is being filled with the Spirit of God. And so Paul's speaking to those who think that they are spiritually mature. If you want to do something right and you find someone who is trapped in a sin, you who live by the, yeah, you can say it, go ahead, don't be afraid of it. You who live by the Spirit should restore, should restore that person. Maybe, maybe a different, well, back up one more time, thanks. Yep. You who live by the Spirit should make fun of them. You who live by the Spirit should ostracize them. You who live by the Spirit should look down upon them. That's not what he says. And as much as some of us want to not care for the person who has been caught in a sin, the Apostle Paul says to Restore. Let me just ask you, we'll just pause here for just a moment and ask each of us the question, have you ever been in need of restoration? Yeah, I have. And I'm guessing we all have. And wouldn't we rather have someone who lives by the Spirit Come and restore us. And he's going to say in the next line, I think. Yeah. 
gently. Well, if you just sit right there in that chair, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. I'm going to tie your hands and tell you all the things that you need to learn and do and start and stop. And, and no, to restore gently. You know, gentleness is one of those things that is just not easy to find in our culture. Because we're so strong and we're so brave and we're so demanding. We're so smart. The Apostle Paul says to do it gently. Sometimes we think kindness is highly overrated. Well, let me tell you something. It's not. And the same thing with gentleness. You can think of those as fruit of the spirit. Remember he talked about those in chapter 5. Don't be so overbearing. If you want to help somebody on their spiritual path, you need to love them. And loving them means to, if they need it, gently restore them. That's a lot to think about. We could stop there, but we have to finish the chapter. Remember, Paul is going to write, Paul is writing this in about 55, 56, 57 Ten years later, he's going to be writing his second epistle to Timothy. And he's going to say, for a time is coming. Yeah. When people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. And see, this is antithetical. This is the opposite of following the spirit. Following the spirit is following the spirit of God when we follow our own desires, we are not. And we'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So yeah, Paul the big myth buster comes right into Galatians and says the same thing to them. Don't be listening to all that stuff. Stick with the gospel that I preached to you those years ago. Remain faithful to Christ. You know, Oswald Chamber, Chambers died in 1927. He's written many things. And this is one, isn't, I, I read this my utmost for his highest. It's a little devotional every day for the year. His wife actually put it together after he was dead from teachings that he gave over a period of time. What a great legacy still lives on. He says, has the voice of God come to you directly. Now you're thinking right now, you mean, did I hear it? That's not what he's talking about. If it has, you cannot mistake the intimate insistence with which it is spoken to you. Here's where it gets to the heart of it. God speaks in the language you know best, not through your ears, but through your circumstances. And that's something every one of us have in common. We have circumstances that we face every single day. If some of you know people who are still working and maybe you're still working, you know that person that you find in your circumstances every single day that needs the gentleness and the kindness and the love and the spirit of God. I have somebody that I work with that I call, this is terrible, the valley of the shadow. 
I just don't want to be there. But my job on my path is to be there. And to evidence in my character and my life and my living the Spirit of God who has called me and with His great power has transformed me and has given me a purpose not to follow my own desires but to follow the will of Him who has called us, that being Jesus Christ, to impact the world for Him. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Galatians five thirteen and 14 Paul says, again, he's using the brother and sister language. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to follow the law? You want to talk about circumcision, which is where he started in chapter 1? You want to be circumcised? Do you think they should be? No. If you want to keep the entire law, love one another. Pop-up quiz. Jesus said they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. How's your love meter doing? What dial is it set on? Is it... Excessive love in the name of Christ or no love at all? You have to decide. Galatians 6 verse 2. Carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. So what he's saying there, if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, what are you supposed to do? Love. Love others. People want to do a lot of things in the name of Christ and a lot of good things are done in the name of Christ. But if it's not underlined, inspired, motivated, generated by love for Christ, then I think you really need to sit back and think what it is that motivates you to do what you do. It's just one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. I can sign up for all those things. Mary had a little lamb, it would have been a sheep, but then it joined the Christian church and died for lack of sleep. <laughs> you just think the more things we do, the better off we are. That's great. As long as you are doing it, loving others, which fulfills the law of Christ. I had a little situation yesterday that I did not expect. So it was a circumstance. Remember, Chambers talked about God speaks to us through our circumstances. I had a circumstance yesterday. We have some friends from out of town from uh, Wisconsin and we were having a nice lunch with them down at Ponce Inlet and we sat down and before the food was brought to the table my uh, the man friend said let me pray for this so when it gets to the table we can start eating and we'd already started a dialogue with the waitress which we always like to do hopefully demonstrating who we serve by the way that we live so he prayed this prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. Glad to be with our friends. Help us by the way we act to demonstrate Jesus' love in our lives for our waitress. Alexis was her name. Well, I thought that was a great prayer, fine prayer. 
So we were enjoying each other's company. It took a long while for the food to get, up, get there. I got up and went to the restroom. I had ordered a bowl of clam chowder. And I like the biggest, tallest, deepest bowl they've got. It was $8.99. I expected to be eating for a long time. When I came back from the restroom, there was like a shot glass. Not that I know what a shot glass is. like a small tumbler glass with clam chowder in it. And I was insulted. My friend was buying the lunch. He was paying good money for that. And I wanted him to get his money's worth. And I was hangry, which is angry and hungry. And then I told him, you know, if you hadn't prayed that stupid prayer, I probably would have gone off on the waitress. <laughs> but the love of Christ constrained me, which was a good thing. So grateful for my friend being there. Sometimes it's easy for us to separate what's going on in our mind with what goes on in our body. My mind I serve Jesus Christ in my body. I am highly offended that this little pitiful offering is given to me for my lunch for $8.99. And we miss doing the will of Christ. And when our mind and body are separated, it gives no room at all for the spirit to work. Where's it going to work? In your mind only? In your body only? Don't separate. You are an entity, a whole, created in the image and likeness of God. And you need to keep your mind and body in sync so that his spirit can work through you in life's circumstances. That's right, John, tell us. Tell us more. Some of you look like you're not believing me. You need to think about it. You know, Paul doesn't just make this stuff up. One, he's inspired. He's an inspired apostle. He's writing. But there's so much in the Old Testament about this, passage after passage. Take a look at Psalm 136, verse 1. I, I use it just as an example because this whole psalm ends every single verse. His love, God. God's love endures forever. And the whole point is, it doesn't matter what situation you are in life. It doesn't matter your circumstances. It doesn't matter... Poverty or prosperity, prosperity, it doesn't matter. His love endures forever. And that's a perspective we need to have in looking through the lens of our eyes on the world. Sometimes we just look like, man, why did that situation happen to me? That's terrible. It's awful. But his love endures forever, doesn't it? God is good. That's where you say all the time. All right, let's take a look at Psalm 138, verses 6 and 7. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks... If God, who created ex nihilo out of nothing, just the diversity that I can see in this room, if that God can be kind... To his creation, who are we to not 
God looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. I'm going to tell you, uh, back that up just a moment for me. Thank you. By the way, you're doing a great job back there. Yeah, sure. He looks kindly on the lowly, though lofty. He's So right here, that word. Have you ever been lowly? You may be lowly right now. You probably know people who are. You're facing disaster. I talked to a young woman who had to go to the emergency room last night. Got there at 1030, wasn't relieved or released until 3 a.m. this morning. And she told me, my deductible is $3,000 and the bill probably is going to be more than that. I don't know how I'll pay it. So on top of her medical condition, she has other concerns. She is lowly. I remember the woman who called late one night. You've got to come. You've got to come. Donnie is leaving. That marriage was ending. She was lowly. I remember the call late one night when a young couple called from a hospital. The hospital seeing things they had never seen before inside my friend Carrie. And it just didn't look good for this young couple with two small kids. We prayed, that church prayed. She was healed. And that story ended up being written in the American Journal of Medicine because it didn't happen before. See, God inhabits our circumstances. God inhabits our path. And just because we don't physically see him doesn't mean he's not already there. And in the event that we see him and we ignore him, It doesn't mean that he's not there and caring. And just because the form of God in our path is some human that we've never seen in our lives and we don't love them, it doesn't mean that God's not there. God is near. Read the Psalms. How many times you can circle and underline. God is near. We've got to move on. Let's look at Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2. Yep. (laughs) Have you ever had to cry aloud to the Lord? Sometimes you come at it from the very basement of your soul. You have no one left to cry out to. You are worse than lowly. You are subterranean. And you see no way out. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And some of us need mercy. Some of us need a lot of mercy. And for those of us who don't, we need to give it. 
We need to show it. Uh, let's put the next one up there, please. I think, is this Proverbs 30? Yeah. This is, I don't know if it's a life verse. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1b. It's the second part of Proverbs 30, verse 1. The psalmist says, I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Easy translation for us is, we don't quit. Why? Because God is God. And he's called us. He's filled us with his spirit. He's given us that power. And he's placed a purpose in our hand. Even the lowest, slowest, most unrecognizable person we've ever come across has the opportunity to allow the spirit of God to inhabit them. A friend of mine, he was a young pastor. In fact, he had been in youth ministry for a while uh, in, in Georgia, and he took his first ministry. And it was a small church, and he was really trying to do things well. And one of the great things that Morris did is that Morris loved the people that he served. I'm going to tell you, there are some pastors who don't love the people they serve. How that works, I don't know. You know, Matthew 4 and Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages healing, preaching, teaching, caring for people. Matthew 4, Matthew 9, in between the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus did. He loved people. So Morris found a man who lived in town in a squalid apartment found him on the street and that man's name was Noah and he got Noah to start coming to church not every week at first but then every week people began to notice dirty old unemployed well they're getting ready to have a big day Sunday People wondered, you know, is Noah going to be there? Should Noah be there? I'd rather have a building full of Noahs than all the pretty people lined up together. So on the Saturday before the Sunday, Morris went to Noah's apartment. And in one of the greatest examples of serving that I know of since Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Morris helped him out of his clothes, put him in his bathtub, gave him a bath, combed his hair, put some other clothes on him, So that he would be acceptable in the sight of people who might see him on Sunday. Already acceptable in the sight of God. I thought we'd do some things in Matthew 13. We're not going to do them because we bowed out of time. 
But let me give you a couple of other examples. We started a new church in Georgia in 1990. And we were literally going door to door. We're calling on telephones trying to find people who didn't have a church home. We came across a couple whose names were Red and Peggy. Sassy. And if you knew Red, Sassy was the right last name for him. I said, Red, how are you today? He'd say, sober, darn it. And I think he was cleaning up his language for church. Well, they had health issues. They were elderly. And that new congregation of people who had never met each other before loved them, cared for them. Peggy had some pretty severe health issues. And it was just a matter of months before we were able very carefully, notwithstanding the oxygen hoses and other things that Peggy was wearing, we baptized Red and Peggy both into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. I'd gone out to California to do a wedding and I'd gotten the news that Peggy wasn't doing well and when we got back, could I come to the house? So we drove straight from the uh, Atlanta airport to their home. And Deanne and I went inside and Peggy was in a wheelchair, but not responsive. And I sat down beside her and got as close to her ears as I could to her ear. I said, Peggy, it's John. And she visibly responded. She tried to speak but could not. And so I just sat there holding her hand, brushing her hair. And in just a few moments, she took her last breath. And I'll tell you how glad I was that in the months before, she'd given her life to Jesus Christ. Well, just when you think the Apostle Paul's all calmed down, <laughs> the last few verses of this chapter, he's just not. He's going to, he's, he's got... Uh, a secretary writing all this down and I'm sure the secretary is thinking alright we've gotten all the way through it all we have to do is sign his name and we're done Paul grabs the pen and says look with how big of letters I'm writing in my own hand <laughs> brings up that whole circumcision thing again telling them it's life in the spirit empowered by the Spirit, demonstrating the Spirit. There were four of us kids growing up, and um, it was back in the 60s, and it was difficult, several divorces, and a lot of alcohol, and a lot of other things, and these four kids, and I was the oldest, trying to navigate our way through that. We got older and I left for college and um, the other three kids remained at home and then my, my brother uh, left home and left the two kids and they just struggled. We, we all struggled in one way or the other. And my brother King, who I'm telling you about, got caught 
in the trap of alcohol. Tried to shake it off, just couldn't. Enrolled and enlisted in the military, served there for a couple of years. Got out, had a child, had a couple more kids. And found himself in Key West, Florida at the age of 29, working in all of the wrong places, a bar. And I won't forget the day my mom called. And said that King had taken his own life. And I tell you that to say, one of the most spiritual things that you can do is to love your own family, no matter what. And love the family of God and gently bring others to the kingdom as you go on your way in your circumstances. Lord, we lift this all up to you, not knowing what you will do with it. But we know that's the best place for it. Challenge us, encourage us, motivate us. In Jesus' name, amen.